Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a gentleman along with brothers Sean and Gerald Levert set the industry on fire with hits such as Pop, Pop, Pop Goes My Mind, Casanova, I'm Still, Good Old Days, Just Coolin', ABC, one, two, three. The list goes on and on of all their hits as a group and then their production work with the likes of Troop, one of the girls, Men at Large, Rude Boys. The list goes on and on. Helen from Cleveland, Ohio. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into all of that and then some with Mr. Mark Gordon. Mr. Gordon, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. All right. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Not nah, a problem. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come on to the podcast. No doubt. All right, so let's go ahead and hop right into it. Cleveland, Ohio, getting into the music business, was it something that you always wanted to do or was it something that just fell into your lap? It's, it's one of those organic things that just kind of happened, you know? And, um, you know, I, I didn't know or was expecting anything uh really but as things start developing and we started working on it for real for real then it was a it was a possibility that we could really do something but i still didn't know you know so i didn't know what to expect but when it happened because when it did happen it happened all kind of fast Mm -hmm. And like I stated at the top of the podcast, brothers Sean and Gerald Levert, of course, you know, their dad, Eddie Levert, senior from the OJ. So practicing and rehearsing before you release the debut album, I Get Hot Off Tim Pre. Were you guys going through the whole OJ's catalog or were you all coming up with your own songs and routines prior to recording your debut album? Yeah, before that, we did Chitlin Circuit in Cleveland, you know, around the, uh, you know, areas. Uh, and we did a lot of different songs. So we did Prince. We did, we did, uh, um, you know, a lot of the stuff from back then. Cameo, um, a lot of funk stuff. So that's what we kind of did. And then when we did the independent record, uh, that's when, we had to do the independent record, but we were, you know, still filling in, doing other songs. So we would do the OJs. We did a few of their songs. Um, and uh, so it, it, it gave people like kind of a preview of what to expect. And uh, and that's what we, you know, that's what we went with. Right. And the mid 80s funk was very heavy. And by you guys being out of Cleveland and not being too far from Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio, and all of the rich musical history that came out of those areas in Cincinnati, said Nathan King Records and Asley. Oh, Bunk. yeah. I just recently had uh, Chris Jasper on the podcast and then Dayton, all the funk acts such as Lakeside, Heat Wave, Zap and Roger. So, what is it that you think it is about? Cincinnati, Dayton, and Cleveland that gives the music industry its rich musical history with all the acts I mentioned? Um, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think for me, part of it was, um, you know, the, the, the class, classroom, meaning that, you know, you, you grow up listening to the music, but, you know, when you have a program in your school, uh, for me, it was elementary school. So you 
was interested in music and you had a chance to, you know, jump into it, you know, and that's kind of how I started. It wasn't, uh, you know, uh, like a thing where I just, you know, had it, um, you know, just from birth or anything, but um, going to school, it was an opportunity for me to um, get out of class for an hour and do something different. And uh, so that's where I was at. And once I got into it, I liked it. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I just I, and and I, I, I developed a, just a kind of a musical ear, uh, probably from that early elementary school training on the violin. And uh, so that kind of I don't know, I, I think it helped me train my ear to uh, to hear different things. In uh, the, the production and music, and so it was always intriguing about how different funk acts and things got their sound and where they where it came from, you know. And um, because sometimes it was, you know, like musical instruments to make the sounds, but nowadays you can make sounds out of everything, you know. So it's it's just different ways to come up with, um, you know. Uh, different grooves and different things you want to be elements to be in the in the song. Mm, and you mentioned how important the arts were in schools and how now you really don't see a lot of that. But prior to everybody who really wanted to get into the music business had started off in the arts in school and you stated that you started doing violin. Did you also do voice and did you do the talent show circuits in school? Uh, I didn't do voice in school, uh, but we did do uh, talent shows. Uh, me and Gerald did a few of them. Um, did my school, we did his school. Uh, we did my school with a band. So we had other people that was involved we did his school it was just me and him. I played piano and he sang, and uh, you know, so it 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 was it was developing into something, you know. And I think that I think when you know or you got a feeling about something, because you know, Gerald was a talent, and I think together we were able to uh, develop something that people could relate to, and. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that love of the music and just the whole process of putting it together, writing songs and everything that was in us. And that, I think, showed in the music. And I, and I really think that's a big part of the success that we were able to have um, at the time. And how did I'm Still come about off the debut album? Uh, I'm still was a, a product of, you know, we had worked on some songs and Eddie had shopped them to all his friends and people with executives and different labels and they all turned us down. So um, we decided to, or Eddie decided to, you know, uh, let's do it independently. And he got together with another guy and, you know, and made it made it happen and uh but the song came about um was a part of those songs that we did initially when we you know first started going in the studio and um and then him uh gerald and and eddie wrote the song mm, and i'm still great ballad 
got regional airplay. And can we talk about the importance of radio station WZAK out of Cleveland and especially Jeffrey Charles and for lovers only? Well, I, you know, it, it was, you know, I always have to give a shout out to the, to the station that, you know, helped push this and especially Lynn Tolliver, who is the, who was the uh, program director at the time. Um, and he immediately, you know, he immediately put it on with no questions, no nothing. Uh, I don't know what it was exactly because um, I didn't I didn't know him at the time. Uh, of course, you you know you heard him because you hear him on the radio and all of that. But uh, at the time, it was just it, it was a connection, and uh, and I guess he he was you know he at the time you know you you they didn't have the corporate aspect of radio uh the way it is now so program directors had more uh you know leeway with what they wanted to play so when he played it a lot of other djs and jocks around the country that follow or you know kind of listen because he was from the rate he was also uh at a record company and uh you know so and he wrote a, a column for billboard so he had some influence to you know to where other people was you know he, he would influence other people and uh and i think that really helped push us uh to another level uh also being able to uh get on soul train independently as independent act uh also that was a big big plus uh you know it it it, it helped us get shows outside of cleveland uh opening up for other national acts and that's what ultimately got us signed was uh performance and uh and the right people was in the crowd and that's how we got signed wow and that's what we do here beyond the album cover we get the backstories now did you all cross paths with uh dream boy they were signed to quest records and they were from oak park michigan no, I never crossed paths with them. Um, I know we crossed paths with uh, um, Ready for the World, and they were from Michigan as well. But uh, I think we were kind of out around the same time, and we had did some kind of uh, radio station event, I think, together before. But, yeah, um not never crossed with uh, Dream Boy, no. Okay, all right. So, nineteen eighty-five, the debut album comes out, and then eighty-six, Bloodline comes out on Atlantic. So, what was that process going from Tempery to Atlantic, and then interacting with the likes of Sylvia Rohn and Merlin Bob? Uh, you know, now we're in a whole nother you know machine that's like built with all kind of pieces and moving parts, and uh, so it was a a definite change in, you know, and and uh, and how we were um, doing everything uh, because we now we had uh, you know itineraries and and uh, you know set uh, uh, interviews and press conferences and different things that we we weren't necessarily getting before. Uh, just so that it was just a difference in the changeover and and going into a major just machine and that's pretty much what it was. 
but uh it was all it was all you know it was it was all love and uh, the first guy that, that that signed it that signed us was hank caldwell and uh before he left but when he left that's when sylvia uh kind of took his place but it was all love we, you know we had a good uh crew up at, at atlantic that was you know that was just our it was like our, you know, home away from home. Mm -hmm. And wasn't Kevin Woodley at Atlantic when you guys were on the label? Yeah, I think he was at, at some point. I don't think he was there in the beginning, but I think he was there and um, and uh, somewhere mid through, midway through. Okay, yeah, Kevin Woodley, friend of the podcast, had him on uh, twice. Great, great guy. And I don't know if you can answer this for me or not, but in the video for Pop, Pop, Pop Goes My Mind, there's a woman dancing in the video. And to me, she looks like Jennifer Lewis. Do you know if it's her or not? No, I don't know if it's her. Okay. I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I don't even know if it was her. Yeah, big oh. mystery, but it kind of looked like Jennifer Lewis to me. Now, Pop, Pop, Pop Goes My Mind, big hit, getting a lot of reach, soul train, video soul, and then going into the studio to make the big throwdown in 87. So what was that process going into making that record? And then your first reaction when Reggie Calloway brought to you all Casanova, which became a crossover smash, both R&B and pop. Um. You know, well, now it's just like, okay, now we got to step our game up more, you know, we got to do uh, more because at this point we still weren't considered the producers yet. And uh, so we were still working with other producers. Uh, we were writing uh, the majority of the songs, but we weren't the producers yet. And that didn't happen until the next album. Uh, we got some joint uh, credits on that album and um but it was uh it, you know it, it things was you know was getting good you know it, it was happening fast and when we um sylvia had the vision of of uh getting a song she wanted a hit um and she I guess she, you know, kind of inquired from different sources, but Callaway came with something that worked, you know, worked for us, and um, and it and it was a it was a smash. Mm, had that bounce, and it was a crossover pop, R and B smash, and it was covered by the UK boy band Ultimate Chaos in the mid '90s, and it's still being played and still loved to this day. Now. I believe it was at this time or a year after the big throwdown. Uh, how did Mama Cita for Troop come about? And before we go into that, I'll just want to have a real quick moment of silence uh, to honor the memory of uh, Reggie Warren from Troop who passed. Let's have a moment of silence for Reggie Warren. All right, let's go ahead and talk about Mama Cita and Troop and how did that come about? Um, you know, music had, had changed a little bit um is, was changing and uh it was just a vibe um we were at the house and at the big house we called the big house and uh and came up with the idea 
Oh, I came up with a beat and you know some some you know groove and and uh, Gerald came with the Mamacita and it was a rap. It was a rap, and uh, Sylvia, you know, got us, uh, you know, to do with the production, um, and uh, so yeah, we had a, you know, we had a good chemistry um, with putting it together, and uh, with the act itself, you know. So mm. now, did you guys demo the record before Troop recorded it? Uh, Gerald did, yes. Yep. Okay. And Mama Cita, great record, launched Troop in the Stratosphere, and we all know what happened after that. Now, during this time, as far as touring, I believe you guys did spots on the Budweiser Superfest. And for those of you that don't know about the Budweiser Superfest, a who's who of R&B acts on this one big bill. So now, was that normally spot dates, or were you going across the country in different dates. And I believe it was put together by Mr. Al Heyman, correct? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, there, it was a, it was a, it was a straight out tour. We, we had a, you know, an itinerary. And then those days, um, you know, those tours lasted longer and uh, um, like we were on a, you know, got the tour with some of the, top ones at on, on at their peak you know what i mean and uh so it was a you know great experience but 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 why super fast yeah we we got a chance to you know get out there and and uh out in the out in the parks because they normally would set up in the parks and uh it, it would be inside of like one of the shipping containers or one of the trucking containers and uh it converted into a stage and and uh yeah so it was a it was a, always a good time doing the Budweiser right and Al Heyman for those of you that don't know famous concert promoter also boxing promoter Floyd Mayweather and you know his name but you rarely see his face or hear him because he rarely gives interviews but Mr. Heyman very influential within music and sports yep Mr. Al Heyman Right, so if he's listening, I'm putting it out there. Come on, come on, Mr. Heyman. I know you rarely give interviews. I'm putting it out in existence. Come on, you got a spot here on Beyond the Album Cover, shooting my shot. So how are you guys as a group able to find the sweet spot where we want to incorporate the new Jack Swing sound, have a youth, youthful, fresh sound, and also because of the lineage coming up under the OJs, have that balance of old and new? Let's say that one more time, the question. Okay. So how are you guys able to have that balance between coming from the lineage of the OJs, but interjecting the youthful sound of R&B and hip hop, that early fusion that we now know as New Jack Swing? Um, I think it was, you know, I think for me, it was kind of conscious uh, because I know that, like I'm still was, a, was you know was a, a ballad, and a lot of people confuse that song uh, or that song for the OJ's, and they um, they didn't know. So we were super young, and I I felt like you know we needed some we needed some younger stuff to 
um, you know, to kind of infuse where we were. And, and if you notice, like in the early songs, we had more kind of, of, of funk ideas in, uh, in the early, uh, like, like for Big Throwdown. You know, it might have been some more like funk type stuff in there. And it's transitioned from there with Just Cooling. Uh, Just Cooling was more hip hop influence, but it was the first uh, album or first song uh, to uh, collaborate with uh, between an a, a R&B group and a hip hop artist. So, um, you know, it was kind of a first, but... Uh, not to say that it wouldn't happen anyway, but it happened with us. I was glad we were able to do it and bring it to life. It's just that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, songs that, that caught on just happened to be slow until a certain time. And that was just cooling or Casanova really because Casanova, you know, but, people would put us in a category as like a balladeer group or we sing in slow songs, but we had up-tempo songs too that that actually, uh, you know, did some, made some moves too. So um, it, I don't know how, how we were able to balance it, but I'm glad we were able to do it, you know? Right. I definitely agree because to set the picture up for those that, may not remember what it was like when R&B and rap was separate. So pre-87, and I'm saying 87 because that was when Make It Last Forever by Key Sweat came out. R&B and rap were on two opposite sides of the room and rarely did they meet. But by the time Teddy Riley came in with his production on Key Sweat's album, Guys debuted the following year. Uh, Jody Watley bringing Rakim in on Friends and then you all bringing Heavy D in on Just Coolin'. There was the merging of rap and R&B at the center and it's been doing great business ever since. Now, who idea was it to bring Heavy D on for Just Coolin'? Uh, that was actually Gerald's idea. Um, but it was the plan to, it was, a, it was kind of a pre-planned to me that we were going to do uh you know you you know find somebody to get on there anyway because it was just that kind of vibe you know what i mean and uh we was listening it's like man we need to get a rapper on this and uh because that's you know that was my vibe at the time and um and he said heavy and i was like yeah let's get him and uh you know got in contact and he uh, heard it and he agreed and he drove down, he spit and it was, it was a match. Definitely that perfect beat, perfect record. The video was dope. And in the video, for those of you that don't know, there was a pre-house party. AJ Johnson is one of the female dancers in the video. And she was also in the video for, uh, I believe it was Get That Money with uh, Tisha Campbell, correct? Yep. Because another uh, fact about them that uh, people probably don't know is that for that particular album, I want to say 87, uh, they came to Cleveland and actually did choreography for us for that project. 
Oh wow, I did I did not know that. And and then years ago, I just found out that AJ Johnson was also one of the female dancers in the Any Heartbreak video. Because if you notice, she's one of the dancers dancing behind Ronnie. And then Gerald also had a brief cameo in the Any Heartbreak video. Uh-huh. Right. So 1988, just cooling hits, and then there's a gap between Just Coolin' and rope dope style in 1990. And I believe probably doing that gap, maybe you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but weren't you guys on the Don't Be Cruel tour? It was yourselves, Karen White and Bobby Brown? Yes, yeah, we was on that tour. And, uh, but we, we also had, uh, you know, um, things that was going on outside of that too, uh, because we did our, the soundtrack for um, we did the soundtrack for Coming to America and, uh, and that, uh, on that we had, um, uh, Addicted to You, um, which also, you know, top charts, uh, but, um, and also at, around that time it was, um, uh new jack city so we were in the new jack city had the cameo in that and did the you know sing around the trash can so it was other stuff that was going on in between the tour and you know so we were also recording uh because we recorded uh addicted to you while we was on the tour in florida uh we went to a studio out there and finished the song and then that was that but mm -hmm. Yeah, so we we it was we was constantly moving. Right. So did you guys have time to really pause for a brief second and kind of soak everything in, or was it pretty much warp speed, keep it moving because everything was moving so fast? Yeah, it was pretty much keep it moving because everything was happening, you know what I mean? And we were we were loving it, you know, we were loving the, you know, just the the ability to be called and 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 people wanted us on their tour and wanted us to be a part of uh, you know different things. So it was a good it was a good feeling. It was a good time. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the songwriting and production within the group, did everybody have a specific role? Like you had your piece, Gerald had his piece, Sean had his piece when it came to the songwriting and production. And was it also right around this time? that travail formed? Yeah, uh, we put that together around that same time. I want to say 87, uh, 88. And um, yeah, but it was primarily, uh, me and Gerald did primarily most of the writing and produ producing. Mm. So what normally comes first for you for songwriting? Is it hook first, chorus, or bridge, or does it vary from song to song? It just varies, you know what I mean? Um, it, you know, in, in creativity, there's no set way of how to, to get to the final product. It's just getting there and, you know, and loving what you, what you have. So uh, it's no set way. It's just, it can come from a concept. It can come from hearing something while you're outside. Like I heard a noise. And you, you know, uh, or you could 
sample the noise and and create the song. It just depends on what vibe you're on at the time. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, sometimes I hear things just out the air and it'd be like, oh, I'm gonna use that. Mm-hmm. And you start developing it from that, you know. So it's a it's a whole nother it's a whole nother thing to, you know, like come up with an idea and next thing you know, your idea is on the radio. You know, it's it's a whole nother it's a whole nother situation there that that's it's real cool. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the beauty of, uh, you know, creativity. Right. You never know when it strikes, you could sample a faucet dripping, you could sample ambient noise from the sky, however way you get it, use it. And then the only thing you can do is hope that it turns out to be a hit, right? Yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you guys when you all were crisscross on certain tour paths with the OJs, would you all sneak and kind of do backgrounds during their shows or we just watch from backstage? Nah, we just watch. But a lot of times we was on, we we was doing a lot of touring with them too. Mm. You know, so we did touring with them. We actually had a tour together uh, called the Family Reunion Tour. And uh, it was, we would you know, we kind of set up a show to where we all came out on stage together and uh, we would do a medley section where we would go back and forth and do uh, they'd do an OJ song. We do one of our songs and back and forth like that. And, uh, you know, a little piece of it. And then, you know, it was just it was a cool show. You know, mm. I don't think I I don't think I appreciated it as much. Then uh, now, you know, like then it was just like you felt, you know, like I I guess I felt like, well, it's just another tour. But it was it was different. It was it was different than another tour because we were able to actually put together, you know, arrange how we wanted to do certain things. And, uh, you know, and it was also good because we was on stage with such a, you know, great act that, you know, that got love from from way back and we was getting love from the you know from the from the new crowd so it was a you know it was a good little mix right and that's the one thing that i appreciated of groups from that era such as the oj's the whispers even further back shylight stylistics blue magic that you were gonna come out polished and it showed in their performance and then you guys ended up carrying on the tradition and new addition and other groups to where when we come out on that stage you are going to get a full show because you all paid your hard-earned money for either a concert ticket a tape cassette or cd and you're going to get your money's worth right that's it yep really devoted to your craft so by you all being around the OJ so much, I'm sure you all were schooled on the inner workings of the business and what not to do and what to do to make sure that you all were set up to play the long game. Because as you and I know, this business can be very cruel, chew you up, spit you out. And if you don't know the fine print of those contracts, it can get ugly for you if you don't know what you're doing or have the right representation around you. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I won't say that we got all the school out of this out of it, but um, you know, because we learned along the way, and a lot of it we learned hard too. You know, so it wasn't like uh, you know, like we had the uh, you know the best uh, um, you know legal minds or anything like that, but. But the thing that we had was, you know, we knew what the intent was to, to, you know, uh, uh, you know, Eddie, which I, I didn't find out until what about a week ago he did. He was, he was doing a little podcast on Instagram. So he wanted to do a, 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 a celebration for Gerald and Sean and all the people that was, you know, that was, band members and different people jumped his kids and they their kids jumped on and so it turned into a thing but i didn't know till then that he you know kind of pushed the 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 the, you know the movement of us being uh writers and producers over them dictating and telling us what we you know how we should do stuff you know what i mean and that was a plus um because that's what we end up doing. And uh, I thank them for that because, you know, a lot of acts don't always get that, that, that leeway to, to write and produce their own. And, um, and, and that kind of takes away from, you know, your publishing and things that you, you know, that you have to live off of. And uh, so I'm thankful for, for that, but there was a, there was, you know, don't get me wrong. There were definitely mistakes in the process that, um, you know, sometimes no amount of schooling can prepare you for some of the stuff that, you know, you, you run into. Mm, so it almost kind of feels like you're trying to learn to swim for the first time. The only way you're going to know if somebody picks you up, throw you in, and you got to learn to sink or swim. Yeah, you got to learn. Yep. You, Someday the training wheels are going to come off. So before we get into Rope-A-Dope style, how did you all get on the Don't Be Cruel tour? Was it a referral or how did that come about, get, getting on that tour? Well, again, you know, that was an Al Heyman tour and he, um, you know, he was, he's from Cleveland. So he, he, uh, we developed a good relationship, rapport uh, and, you know, and he always thought of us uh, for his shows. And uh, so that's how that came about. Uh, at least that's what I, that's what, what I know. But I, I don't know if there was anything else that was influenced by that. But um, I know he was behind a lot of the major tours that we were on. Um, so don't be, the, the you know, Bobby Brown tour um, cameo. I believe he was involved with. Um, we was on that Word Up tour. We was on the Freddie Jackson tour. Um, you know, these are all at the peak of their, you know, touring, you know. And uh, so I believe that it was because of Al Heyman, you know, and, uh, you know, reaching and looking out for us. And we were working, so it wasn't like we, we were sitting around and uh, we didn't have product. We we constantly had product because every year after we got to Atlantic, uh, we had a record up until um, and even in between that, like I said, we had the you know soundtracks and 
and that thing. So we had music that was constantly rotating. Mm-hmm. And that helped us on some of those tours too. Right. It's definitely beneficial to have friends in high places. And I believe Mr. Heyman was in on the New Edition Heartbreak Tour, I believe. Yeah, he probably was. Right. Uh, definitely a money-making tour, Bobby's tour, money-maker, because, folks, this was right around when Bobby Brown was peak Bobby Brown. Don't Be Cruel was the number one best-selling album of 89, crossover superstar. I mean, just Google Bobby Brown 1989, and you'll find bits and pieces of touring performances and nobody touch Bobby once he hit that stage. Yeah, it was a great show. It was a great, great show from beginning to the end. And then you, you, know, you might not know this, or maybe you do, but at some point, uh, Hammer was on the tour, too. I never and, knew that. Uh, that was, yeah, Hammer was on some of those tour dates. Uh, I forget what happened, but Hammer ended up being on the tour. And then at some point, um, I think it they broke off and I think they went overseas, but yeah, it was a hammer. It was Bobby and uh, hammer came on. Let me see. Hammer came on after us. And uh, yeah, I think I forget how the order, but hammer was right either before it was right before Bobby. And uh, you know, so they kind of, Every now and then they kind of clash uh, because Hammer was Hammer had a million people on stage and and you know um, Hammer Hammer was putting see some heat on Bobby and uh, you know so that's probably where some of the you know some of the riff came but because the stage is you know everybody fighting for that you know hey we gonna kick y'all ass tonight or whatever and uh, and sometimes you know it's all in in good and good uh, competition, but but sometimes, you know, you can take it farther than that, but it was a good time. Right, I definitely agree because that killer lineup, you guys, Karen White, Hammer, Bobby Brown, top of the line, save your money, your ducats to get a ticket. You don't even care if it's nosebleeds, you just wanted to be in the building. So you guys did shows on Arsenio. So what was that like going on Arsenio, knowing that he's from Cleveland and seeing the impact that not only he had within urban culture, but pop culture, because this was the first time where a late night show host were hosting musical acts that you probably weren't gonna see on a Joan Rivers, a Johnny Carson, or a David Letterman. It was where you could be your authentic self, not watered down. Oh yeah, it was a beautiful thing because we knew Arsenio before. You know, so uh, it was, you know, it was, shit, we was, we had hometown in, in the, in the spot. Cleveland was in the house. And that was, you know, even similar to, uh, you know, like uh, 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 um, Steve Harvey. He knew Steve Harvey before, you know, he became the Steve Harvey who he is now. Uh, but back in the day when we was, before we was, before we was even Levert, before we hit, uh, we knew Steve, and Steve used to work at the mall. 
and uh, at one of the men clothing stores. And uh, and so, you know, we didn't know he was going to be Steve Harvey and he probably didn't know we were going to be Levert. <laughs> so, but, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, situation but it's always good to see people in your you know from your hometown doing great things you know right definitely that so 1990 hits and rope dope style comes out baby i'm ready all seasons and the list goes on and on of all the hits from that album so being deep in the game by this point what was the process of putting together rope dope style um just you know always trying to come up with something creative that's where rope dope style you know people like what what is that you know whatever we was just man we was just loving whatever the creativity and whatever we was doing it was you know to me we 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 tried different things because that was part of creativity you know and uh you know some people got it and some people didn't but um but for the most part, I believe that, you know, uh, to me, I wanted a, a record to kind of just put on and, you know, especially on the slow side, that was the time when I was doing records and wanted to, one side to be the slow side. So you can put that side on and just, uh, you know, and let it go. And then the other and then the other uh, side was kind of like the mid to up-tempo side. You know, that was before, um, you know, CDs um, when, when I was doing that. But yeah, but for the, for the albums on sides, yeah, I wanted the slow side to be, you know, just smooth, let, let it flow. So they can put it on and it can do whatever it needs to do. Because mm -hmm, definitely your ballads quiet storm staples now did you all have a hand in the sequencing or in picking which singles going to be the lead the second the third or was that primarily a label and they tell you guys okay we're going to pick this as the lead and it's like okay uh um yeah it was uh it was kind of a mutual agreement like but we made the decision mostly and for most of it but it was kind of like an agreement where you know we was under the same understanding you know um so yeah between the label and us right because for those that don't know sequencing and picking which single is going to be your lead and your second single can be make or break now who were you guys listening to on the radio that you guys took inspiration from? Like, were you guys listening to Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, LA and Babyface, Leon Silvers, or any of the other hotshot producers at the time? Teddy Riley? Um, we listened to whatever was coming out. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, but, you know, all of the influence came from, you know, the older acts and, you know, like I was heavy into Earth, Wind and & Fire and, you know, I was heavy into Cameo and a lot of the funk stuff. And uh, so, and it's, you know, Roger, you know, um, 
So those were like the influences. But as music changed or music sounds started changing, you develop what, you know, you want to, how you want to present your sounds. Because um, me, I, you know, I never want to, um, you know, kind of bite off of other sounds. But um, it's, you know, once you, it, there's really nothing that's new uh with the sounds it's, it's just that how you you know rotate them or how you you know put them in the mix or how you use them you know and I, I was heavily into sampling too so that was part of the you know creative influence you know too is um be able to use something and and it totally flip it from what it what what you know it as you know um and uh, it's just all creativity. Mm -hmm. You take it how you can get it. Now, how did you all come about in discovering the Rude Boys, you know, ran all over your face, big hit, and working with them? Um, well, one day, Gerald brought them over to the big house. Right? Actually, it was just uh, Buddy and Joe. And uh, originally, that's all I thought that was in the group was a duo. And um, then that, when I saw them, and uh, again, it was like four or five of them. And I'm like, oh, okay. But um, yeah, so that's how that came about. They were, you know, I guess he saw them somewhere and it's like, yeah, I want to do something with them. And I'm like, okay, so that's where it was. Mm -hmm. And written all over your face, big hit now. Was that the same story for Minute Large, or was it something totally different? Yeah, it was a similar story. Um, they're around Cleveland, and actually, one of the guys, Dave, is uh, Lynn's, Lynn Tolliver's nephew. And uh, so there was a connection there already. Um, and it was, it was kind of a concept because they were kind of, they were kind of hefty. And uh, so that's how the name came about and everything. Uh, I guess Gerald came with that idea. So, um, yeah, it was a similar type situation. Okay. And did you all have any interaction with uh, R&B group based out in New Orleans called The Real Seduction? They were signed to Atlantic. They put out the It's Real album and they had the single Ain't Nothing Wrong, which was produced by uh, Intro. No, I haven't. No, I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't cross paths with them. No. Okay. Did you cross paths with Intro? Um, no, not really, not directly, but, um, I was working around, you know, different people at some point in, and, you know, um, when I left Cleveland and, um, I had done some stuff when Missy had just got started and well, not really got started, but before she blew up, uh, we, while she was blowing up, we were working on some projects together. Okay, okay, okay. But um, no, I didn't, I, I hadn't crossed paths with them at that time uh, until later on. Mm. Now I want to circle back to Troop. We talked about how Mama Sita 
launched them in the stratosphere then in 89 attitude with spread my wings the cover of all i do is think of you and my music i'll always love you those two records in particular were the first early production credits of a young dallas austin so what was it like for you seeing their success from the debut to attitude to deeper um I mean, I was happy to be a part of it. Um, you know, I, I, you know, you don't. I, I guess while it's happening, you don't really think how, how, how you know, much um, work or how much time and how much you know music has been put together. But you know, them guys had a lot of music. After I thought about it, like, you know. Um, so it, I think they were, they uh, constantly kept, you know, coming back with something. So that's what I think, uh, you know, helped push them because, uh, you know, keeping them, keeping uh, some music going and, and that the people want to hear is going to keep you in the spotlight, keep you in, you know, in a good position, um, whether on the charts or, just in out in the community where people want to hear your your stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, 1990, Robodope Style, then there was a three-year gap because For Real Doe came out in 93. So how are you guys able to balance, okay, we're going to do this album, but at the same time, allowing everyone else to have their own space to do their own separate thing, whether it be production or solo albums? Um, well, you know, it was just one of them things that happened and, um, um, you know, it was a lot of transitioning going on. So it was just one of them things that was either going to happen or, you know, or not happen. But I think that, um, uh, we were able to, you know, we were able to come back and still, you know, come with something that I think people wanted to hear. And um, so it's always, that's always the inspiration to me. Mm -hmm. Now, how did the song Good Old Days from Pharrell though come about? Cause to me, whenever I hear it, I hear it as an homage, like the song titled The Good Old Days when things were the way they were and, you know, we want to take it back. Uh, you know what? I think now that you, 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 you saying that and the time frame that it was and what I just said, you know, we were going through some challenges and I don't think it was intentional, but I think there was some challenge, some challenges ahead of us. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's the whole inspiration, but now that I look at it, that was kind of like a, you know, like a, a cry for, we want to go back in time and, you know, um, you know, if you can go back and redo some stuff and, and, uh, and, and get some of that old feeling back. Um, when things were not as good, but seeming like good because, you know, we were, we were able, as black people, we were able to always make 
good out of bad situations. You know, we were able to handle whatever situation that came to us as black people, I believe. Otherwise, I think, you know, we wouldn't have been able to last as long. You know, it's just like, you know, people say, well, yeah, we're back in, in, in the, you know, slavery days, then uh, they sung the, 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 the hymns and the, you know, they always had a song to carry them through. Um, whatever situation, they would go to a song. And I think that's always been, I think it's a black thing. I just think that is something that's in us to, you know, want to go back to good times, regardless of what's going on. And, um, and that's true because even at that time, we were saying good old days, but now you still say we want the good old days. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You can still say that now. Like, man, I want to go back to the good old days. Right. Everybody wants to go back to when it was simple, when it was fun, where you didn't have bills and you didn't have a care in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And again, it's not don't mean that it was a, a better time necessarily, but it was better because it was simple or it wasn't as complicated to to where we were, you know, getting into the, the older situations to, you know, now you, you, you might have some arguments and fights and or whatever it is that's that get in the way of your situations or relationships or whatever it is you know like people want to escape and go back to when it was simple or at least seemed to be simple you know when it was better for you all um, as a as a team or as a couple or whatever don't mean the world was better it just means that you know things was a lot simpler and a lot uh you know just people had more compassion and you know, just the, the community was a little bit better. And, uh, you know, so. Right. Everybody looked out for everybody because I can relate to that coming from small rural North Carolina. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, you probably went to school together from elementary, middle on up. And if you did something wrong, the community had permission to get into that behind. And then you're going to get it even more when you got home. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of that is missed because people now just run rampant, can do whatever. You know what I mean? Some of the stuff you would be ashamed to do back in the day because you knew that somebody going to say something to somebody and it's going to be a problem. You're going to get a whooping <laughs> by the by the people who found out and by the by your mama and your daddy when they find out. So, you know, it was a lot more respect. Mm -hmm. It was either you were going to have to get a belt or go outside, pick a switch. And if you picked a small one, they were going to make you go back out and pick another one. All right. Yeah, so I, so I know. So we're going to pivot from music for a minute. We're going to talk about a little bit about sports because Cleveland – great sports town but it been had by heartbreak over the years whether it be the shot the drive the fumble but 
that all had been washed away when LeBron James from Akron, not too far from Cleveland, delivered a championship to the Cavaliers, then with the Browns now on the rise and looking to build off their successful season last year, making the playoffs. And then you have the Cleveland baseball team. Everybody knows them from major league and they're one of the top teams in major league. So what is it that you think it is about Cleveland that makes it a great sports town? Um, I think because, you know, Cleveland have had a, a football team for years I mean, you talking about going back to Jim Brown and before. So um, they were one of the early, early cities to have a, 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 a professional sports team. And uh, so that, that's been around, but over the years created rivalries with Pittsburgh, you know, that was division rivalries and plus they right next door. So it was just like, you know, having that, school rivalry from you know one school to another but this was whole towns because and I didn't know the whole basis of the rivalry until um, a few years ago but the basis was about really about uh, work you know Steelers was steel town it's a steel town so it's a bunch of steel you know uh, that they produce and the same like Ohio was that kind of a town where you got you had steel and different things too so there was a lot of competition from that that bled over into sports you know what I mean and uh, I think that's just one of the things that lasted over the years but it is a great sports town uh, we deserve you know we deserve more uh, just because of that but you know and I think they'll get it you know I think we made some bad moves with uh, management and or coaching or lack of coaching. And, um, and hopefully, you know, they, you know, the Browns is on the, on the road to becoming a, a great team as opposed to just being kicked around, you know, uh, Cavs is going through it now. Um, even though they have, I believe they have a decent squad and it's just, you know, you the timing is don't be right with everything, and and having that, you know, the the, the right timing with injuries and stuff like stuff like that. So, um, hopefully they get, you know, they get it, they get it together and uh, make it right. Yeah, the Browns are definitely on the rise. You know, like I said, they. Broke their playoff drought last season. They got great pieces around Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb. And they just picked up Jadavion Clowney to go along Miles Garrett. And Coach Stefanski has the Browns being one of the teams to really make a Buffalo Bills type leap like the Buffalo Bills did last year when they were one game away from the Super Bowl. Now with Ohio State and Michigan, is Cleveland primarily Ohio State? or Michigan or neutral when it comes to those two schools playing? Oh, it's Ohio State all day. I don't think there's no competition when it comes to Cleveland. And Cleveland is with Ohio State all day. O-H-I-O. If you know, you know. Yes. 
Exactly. Um, so, wait, the Browns got rid of the other running back? Um, that I'm not sure, but as of the taping of this podcast, it is a uh, round one of the NFL draft. And I believe the Browns have not picked yet, but it's going to be interesting to see where the Browns will be picking and who they pick up in order to build off of the success. And before we go back into the music, I want to ask you, what is your take on the impact of LeBron James, not only for Akron and Cleveland, but in and around the surrounding areas with his I Promise school and just being more than an athlete, standing up for social cause and really living up to all the expectations that has been weighed on him since he was at St. Vincent, St. Mary. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a great player. I mean, he do what he believes in. I believe, um, you know, something as valuable um, like his, his crew, his team, that he came up with and, and went to school and, and he brought them along with him. And, uh, you know, uh, now, you know, his, his, his homeboy is the, is probably the top uh, agent out there now. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a beautiful thing because, you know, um, especially for, you know, young guys, even though he's, I mean, he's not as young now, but, but it's good to see young guys that have a plan and uh, uh, and a mission, and they act on it as opposed to um, not acting or um, doing nothing or just kind of superficial or just nothing is serious to you because you don't want to jeopardize your check. And I think that you know he's changed the game in a lot of ways. Um, just because um, before he was doing it, nobody was taking the two-year deals and like or with an option and saying, okay, well, I'm only going to sign for two years. And he gave other players the incentive to do that to where they really had to maximize their money that way because, um, you know, uh, the money had changed over, you know, meaning that it went up as far as the money that the industry was getting. So if the industry get more money, we got to get more money. And knowing that he didn't want to accept, um, you know, a long-term deal to where you locked into a certain amount of money because now you can't, you can't try to get more money because uh, you locked in, you know. And uh, knowing that it's just. It's just when you when you when you're on top of your game, you know all of that stuff. You you're on top of it. Like you you got a team of people thinking about things that's relative to you being successful, and relative to you being uh, successful off the court also. And uh, I think that's what he's been able to you know to put out there on a consistent basis. I can't I can't hate on him, and I and I feel you know that people that do just hate. You know what I mean? You can't hate on that. Mm, no, you definitely can't hate on what he's doing. And also got to give big ups to Karis LeVert doing his thing with the Pacers. Right. Big up to Karis doing his thing with the Pacers. So besides the Midwest and Cleveland, 
what were some of Levert's top markets or regions of the country to tour? D.C., Washington, D.C., Virginia. Um, I'd say Texas. Some of every Detroit. Um, uh, there was a lot of places that, you know, was our frequent, you know, we were fre frequent flyers to um, New Orleans. We had a lot of spots that we hit. Right. Yeah, because I could definitely remember seeing the bill for the different tours, either in Ebony or Jet, and just saying, man, I wish somebody would have the foresight to record it and release it because hearing about all those acts on one bill like the Budweiser Superfest, if they would have had it on VHS tape with the concerts or at least on cassette or CD, the performances, that would have made a killer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let me uh, clarify something because I think you said you said Budweiser Super. We was talking about Budweiser Superfest earlier, but I think it was also another tour that was like the, the Miller Sound Express uh, that we were on a lot too. The Miller Sound Express uh, was the one that you know they convert a the truck a a, a truck uh, uh, thing into the stage and all of that. But the Budweiser Superfest usually happened in Cincinnati. Uh, I think Cincinnati that was the I think the Budweiser Superfest. Okay. And uh, it, of course, all over the place. But yeah, it was that happened in the stadium. Wow, that's something that we did not know, especially with Miller having their own concert series to compete with Budweiser Superfest. And to think about it, both of those brewing companies based out of the Midwest and Heiser Bush, St. Louis, Missouri, and Miller in Milwaukee. Yep. Which is, yep. which is so crazy. So, for real though, comes out in 93. Everybody goes off after that to do their own thing, whether it be productions, solo projects. Now, did you have any idea about LSG before it happened? No. No, no idea. Yeah, that was definitely... You know, at... at Go ahead. At, at, you know, at some point, again, I was, like I was saying earlier, at some point we kind of, you know, went different ways. And, um, and um, so in that certain things, I just wasn't knowing anymore um, because I wasn't attached to it that way. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, we still, had obligation with uh, Atlantic and um, um, you know it hadn't gotten to that point until after that but we still again was able to come come together and come with some music that you know we thought people wanted to hear mm, and that was the album out in 97 and by this time Cleveland has definitely been on the map and on the scene so what was your take on 
when Bone Thugs and Harmony came out and then Crossroads became a big crossover smash for them. And they were one of the last acts discovered by Easy e before he passed. So what was your take on when Bone Thugs came out and how they just exploded and really put on for Cleveland? Um, I, I mean, I think it's a, just a great thing for, you know, Cleveland has to get to shine. And, um, but ironically, it was, you know, it was still some connection in there with us because um, what ended up happening before they were signed, Easy was, Easy had a show at Gerald's Club. He had a club called Verts. And um, at that show, the people involved with Bone Thugs was trying to get at Easy. And that's how the connection kind of happened right there. And, um, and Easy followed up after that with them. And next thing you know, they was coming out. You know what I mean? But they, they, they were, they were, their people was trying to get on the show with Easy. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't no guarantee that that was going to happen. But, uh, but their persistence, you know, got them where they were and because they were trying to be a part, they just wanted to get on the show. They kept insisting to be involved and easy, you know, took notice and, and um, he got with them and that was that. But right. it's a good thing that, uh, you know, it's a great thing that, you know, when you got people, hometown i'm glad to see him make it mm, and cleveland home of the rock and roll hall of fame now i want to go back real quick to when we're, what we we're talking about at the top of the podcast with cincinnati <laughs> and dayton in cleveland now did those three areas kind of not really do a lot of collaboration or was it more of we have our own scene over here and we just do our own thing and there's not really a lot of meshing and mixing between the three cities to do to do what exactly you saying so was there a lot of collaboration musically between cleveland cincinnati and dayton or were they all separated in their own silos doing their own thing musically i think everybody just was doing their thing you know whatever it was to you know to get some traction, you know what I mean? And um, I don't think it was a thing where we wouldn't work with other people. Uh, I think that especially for us, we were just, we were just having the time of our life at that point. And, um, you know, so we were, we, we were, you know, we were trying to get it all. We were trying to do it all, you know? And, um, but, yeah, no, it, you know, I, 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 I look at it like, you know, there's a lot more that I wish we would have done um, together, you know, because um, it's, you know, it's just a lot to, to a lot of good music that you, you know, um, you know, what you can create. Now, what we did do, we did, we did get a chance to collaborate with George Clinton and, um that song never came out. Um, Sylvia didn't want the song to come out, so it didn't come out. But uh, I have the I have the mind to try to try to pull it out and revive it. 
and uh, you know, do something with it. But that was a collaboration I was definitely happy about because, you know, George was like a, you know, the Funkadelic Parliament. Come on, man. That's 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 just some next level creativity. Like, you know, you can't get no more creative and more funky than um than that, you know. Mm. So yeah, you definitely can't get no higher than that because George Clinton, along with Zap and James Brown, pillars of a lot of the hip hop records that ended up getting sampled and getting reintroduced to a totally new generation. Exactly. They'd be so totally new that they think that they think that, and I've heard this myself, do young boy thought that uh that uh that uh, uh <laughs> that Imtume took from stole the song from Biggie <laughs> like wow Imtume stole the song from Biggie which is the other way around but that's why it's so important to have platforms where you can educate those on no this came before that and to really know your roots know the history and pay homage exactly and that's something that we are bad at uh we are horrible at that because um if you go overseas they know your they they know all your stuff they know they know stuff you weren't even thinking about. I mean, they honor R&B music for real. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, unless it's being sampled as, you know, somewhat of a lost uh, art that's being pushed. But, uh, you know, my thing is to continually do what I know to do, you know, and, um, so that's my goal is to keep putting out music that I know that works or that have worked in the past, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And uh, real quickly, can we talk about one of the girls? Mm-hmm. What you want to know about them? How did they get discovered, the process of making their album and the single Handle With Care? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly how he came with them um because i'm not sure how they came came about next you know they next thing you know they was at the office and uh it was one of the girls like okay uh handled with care i believe was done by a couple of the members in the band uh, that were you know that was riding with us uh, for years they um i believe they came with the song i'm not sure about the writing of this of uh handle with care okay all right and are you familiar at all with an r&b group that was out of cincinnati that went by the name of cold premiere they were the group that were singing and dancing to that song in the gym scene in the movie class act 
No, I don't. I hadn't ran across them. Okay. All right. Now, current projects. What what you got cooking? Uh, I'm working on. I'm working on my project after you know a hundred years. <laughs> nah, I, I, I'm working on my project, uh, and, and it's going to be a kind of a combination of, of some things because I'm putting a, my story together, and uh, so I, I, I'm I'm coming with just overall content from you know A to Z. I'm coming with some content whether it's uh, reading, visual, or um, musically, I'm coming with some content. Right. And I hope that, you know, um, I hope that the people, you know, like it. Right, and we're definitely looking forward to that when it drops. And I wanna get you out of here on this. Overall, Levert's legacy, how would you describe the legacy of Levert and the impact that you guys had on the music industry? Um, I think I think there was definitely some impact. Um, I don't think that you know. I always say this, and uh, and I believe it's true that you know this is not how the story was supposed to go but this is the way it went. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that, I think as time go and, and more, um, you know, cause I'm gonna do, I, I'm, I'm always doing everything I can, social networking to make sure that, you know, we are being uh, preserved and there's other people that's out there that's, you know, always promoting 80s and 90s and this and that. And uh, so I appreciate them for doing it uh, because we are mentioned, you know, in that in that grouping. And uh, but I'm always trying to do something to keep that out there because that's, you know, that was the nucleus for everything that we had to do with, you know, the nucleus was us doing um, what we did, you know, and uh, I think that I want to preserve that as much as possible and just, you know, um, do more music. And in fact, I do have some unreleased music that I am going to, uh, I plan on releasing uh, from the group. So, um you know, it's just a, a lot to, you know, to go through and process. Um, and, you know, um, just always trying to, you know, trying to uh, make the people happy and, 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 and make them feel a certain way, put them in the mood, you know, and, um, you know, give them something that they, they haven't, you know, been getting or, um, you know, just being a part of the, the good times in their life. You know what I mean? It's, it's nothing better than them kind of stories when I get those stories from people that'll come up and tell you that they, you know, they got married to your song, they had their kids to your songs, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, so that part of it is something you can't really, you know, you nothing else compares to that kind of situation you can you can make all the money you can 
you know, do all the things and everything. But uh, when people really get it and they really into it like that and they tell you them stories, it'd be like, man, like you don't know how that is to be a part of somebody's life like that, to touch them to where they're, you know, really um, they're part of your whole, you know, why you do what you do. You know, and uh, so I appreciate that from the from all the people that supported Levert and anything Levert related, because uh, you know it helps to um, you know keep us keep us promoted. Mm-hmm. You guys, legacy forever stand the test of time. And before we uh, close out the interview and do shout outs and plug your social. I wanna do a moment of silence to honor the legacy and memory of Sean and Gerald Levert. Let's have a moment of silence for Sean and Gerald Levert. Amen. So do you have any shout outs you wanna give Mr. Gordon before we conclude this interview? Also plug your social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Mark J. Gordon. Uh, I might, Jay might throw people off, but it's Mark J. Gordon, or you can maybe type in Mark.Gordon. And uh, the same on Facebook, Mark.Gordon. And um, and uh, I do have Twitter, and I think it's the same. I don't be on it as much. I got to get a little bit better at, uh, you know, being on social media like that. I kind of fell off of it um you know after I lost my mom and I just wasn't really you know I was going so hard before that it was just like man I had to fall back for a minute so you know but uh yeah I just um yeah hit me up on there I'm 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 out there but you will be seeing some things uh I'm developing uh some things uh um as far as on the music networking side. And um, so you may be seeing some radio uh, programming and you know stations developing across the country in different cities. So, you know, look out for that. Uh, 9311 Entertainment Group uh, is my label and entertainment network um, that I plan to do that with. So you may be seeing, uh, you know, a network near you um, you know, where we want to ensure giving, uh, giving us our music that the people want, you know what I mean? And, uh, not just that, but, you know, my, my thinking is to create the infrastructure for us to, you know, do what we do without the, and the outside influences and the, and the people that's, uh, you know, trying to control the music game and, uh, you know, we do it for the love, you know what I mean? We do the music, of course we gotta get paid, but you know, um, the music game is is a tough game. And I think it's long overdue that we have our own infrastructure and things that we do so that, um, you know, nobody can control what you're doing and hold your copyrights and, you know, and uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, drain the blood out of 
every song that you ever put out there. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's long overdue for that. And uh, so that's my kind of, that's part of my mission right now is to bring that to life, not just for me, but for our community, you know, our music community and our um, and us as a black community. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling it behind the streaming and the behind the things that uh, the industry is has used as as uh, to 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 basically capitalize over artists. And I'm just I'm over it. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, because as we see with digital and streaming, the rates are low and the numbers don't add up when you get those quarterly earnings from either BMI or ASCAP. So it's about time that artists say, no, we're not going to stand for it and we're going to cut the middleman out. We're going to do it our way and we're going to want the whole pie, not just a piece or a sliver. Exactly. So. That's that's a campaign you may see me initiating, um, and if you know people, you know you're gonna have some people that's not gonna be along because they they used to, you know, getting catered to by the label. It's hard to, you know, pull away from that dangling carrot. You know what I mean? But in, to make a, a stand for a bigger picture, then I think that's what it require to stop using abusing uh, artists when they're creating the, the, the content they're creating it you know you use it and and abuse it for 30 35 years then you don't want to give the masters back you know and uh so we just uh, you know when you know better you do better and that's what it's time for mm -hmm. industry industry rule number 4080 Shout out to Q-Tip, A Child Called Quest, Ali Shaheed Muhammad, rest in peace, Pipe Dog. If you know, you know. Do you have any people you'd like to thank before we conclude? Um, I mean, I, I basically, I want to thank the, you know, thank, like I said, thank the, thank the, the, the fans, the people that's been supporting the vert and all of the, you know, acts, you know, that follow and that continue to follow and um you know keep looking out for a good product because it's coming and uh we appreciate it we appreciate the you know we appreciate the fans and the and the supporters you know right and i appreciate you coming on to beyond the album cover and you can catch this wherever you stream podcasts on my youtube channel youtube.com slash beyond the album cover or at the website beyond the album cover dot wordpress.com ladies and gentlemen let's give a big thank you round of applause to mr mark gordon for coming on to beyond the album cover thank you once again mr gordon for coming on to the podcast uh, thank you i appreciate the Appreciate the platform. We need more uh, to get the word out and keep, uh, you know, keep these young people informed on, on the music and the history. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. I appreciate you.